Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. As we look at it now, just leave some of the thoughts, some of the words of it in our hearts and our minds that we might hear them, understand them, apply them, and obey them for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, again, thank you very, very much indeed for your welcome. We've really, really enjoyed our, our, our brief time in this um, little outpost of southwest London. I called it South London yesterday, and I was rebuked for it. Um, I've never really been here before, apart from coming through here on the train, to my shame. But I love Surbiton. It's a great place. And... <laughs> so thank you very much for your welcome. It was lovely to be with you um, yesterday. Uh, we were, we've been looking through uh, 1 Thessalonians for those of you who weren't there yesterday. We looked at 1 Thessalonians 1, we looked at 1 Thessalonians 2 yesterday evening, we looked at 1 Thessalonians 4, the first part. And I just want to come to the, some of the final words that Paul gives in 1 Thessalonians 5 today. There, there's so much that we have missed out. But nevertheless, I think these are just wonderful little instructions from which we can learn a great deal. And if I had a, a special text of it all, it would be verse 24. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 24. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Now, there are some people who have a, an unknack, uncanny knack of being positive, of seeing good in every situation, always looking on the bright side. They never seem depressed. They never seem phased when things go wrong. Uh, whenever does, anyone does anything for them, they are full of gratitude. They're always looking to build up and encourage others. They're wonderful people to be around. And then... There are those who are the opposite, shall we say, who are always moaning, always whinging, things are never quite right. They kind of suck the joy out of every situation or a room in seconds. And there are some, dare I say, even amongst Christians who can be like that. And we also don't know why. Why do they seem so ungrateful and so miserable? Why are they always moaning? Because when you look at the pages of the New Testament, you find this constant emphasis upon joy. We are urged to be joyful, to be thankful, to be grateful. Why don't we somehow see it? Well, as we come to this passage in uh, chapter 5 today, um, we've just, Paul has just been speaking, this is a bit that I missed out, about the wonderful hope of eternity. Uh, chapter 4, verses 30 to 80, it's just a great, great passage talking about death, really, and what lies beyond it and the hope that's beyond it. In fact, there's a verse that I often use at funerals or in face of death when it says, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Yeah, we grieve when we lose loved ones, but we have hope for eternity. So if they're walking with the Lord, we don't have any fears at all. But everything after that is how we are to live in the light of eternity. So often we forget it. So often we forget that there is this great prize in front of us. But Paul will have us believe that we are going to go be with Christ forever. And that's the thing that spurs us on to live life now. We know that one day uh, Jesus will come back to bring in a reign of perfect justice and peace. He will right every wrong. He will wipe away every tear. He will heal every disease. We know that it's going to happen. We just don't know when. But in the light of that, Paul ends the letter with these short instructions as to how we're to live as believers. Uh, and he just gives a few little instructions. Actually, Jillian, I've left the clicker behind. Can you hear it? See if it works. Thank you very much. And there are five words I want to leave with us this morning. Five words that Paul gives us in these instructions, okay? And there are five marks that should denote that we're Christians, the world should see. 
And the first one, if I can get it. Oh, I've got to turn it on first, haven't I? That's it. Five marks. First, we are called to be joyful. Verse 16. Be joyful always. Rejoice always. It's a tough command, isn't it? I mean, how can we always be joyful? Uh, joy, in many ways, is something we can't control. Life has its ups and downs. And in our downs, how do we feel joy? When we're bereaved, when we're facing serious illness, losing a job, experiencing divorce, all sorts of some of the horrible things that life can throw at us. How do we feel joy then? It's, it's kind of an elusive quality, it can seem, because it comes to us at unexpected times, when we suddenly feel really joyful, and we want to bottle it up, but we can't. But in the Bible, joy comes not from our immediate circumstances, because they do change. It's something deeper and more secure. It comes from our relationship with Jesus. It's our certainty that with him we're safe, that we're forgiven, that we're accepted. See, the point is, if we look to this world to provide our joy, we will always end up disappointed. If we look to him, we never will be. Uh, not long ago, I picked up a, a book that I'd not read for years. It's by an old preacher by the name of R.A. Torrey. You may have come across him. There's some great books, actually. But in this particular passage, he talks about joy. It's, it's kind of old, a bit antiquated, but I love what he says. This is what he says. A person can never get joy through the accumulation of wealth. Many have tried it, but no one's ever succeeded. A person cannot get joy through seeking the world's honors. Many have tried it, no one's ever succeeded. A person cannot find joy through indulging in the world's pleasures. Many have tried it. No one has ever succeeded. But friends, the most wretched heart in this world can find joy instantly through believing in Christ crucified and risen. Written hundreds of years ago, or more than 100 years ago. But isn't that true? Isn't that true that we'll look to the world to provide joy, we will never find it? But actually, as we understand God, as we understand Jesus, as we understand eternity, we find joy. C.S. Lewis, in his book, great book, Surprised by Joy, said, if you seek joy, you won't find it. If you seek God on God's terms, you will find joy. And that should be in our own relationship with God. It should be as we meet together. There should be a joy, a sense of, of, of longing and, and, a, and a wonder in the presence of God. And I often wonder why it is that so often in church we, we can look miserable. Actually, having said that, I had this reputation of looking miserable in church. Somebody in, in All Souls, I don't John and Debbie, Mary, remember, I don't know. He wrote to me one day. He said, I'm writing to you on the basis that you're the only person in the whole of All Souls who seems to be as miserable as I am in the service. <laughs> I wrote back. We were instantly friends. Um, and yeah, we got to know each other very well. But uh, there should be something about us that is infectiously joyful. Uh, a third century Christian wrote this, it's a bad world, an incredibly bad world, but I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people who've learned a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of our sinful life. They're despised, they're persecuted, but they care not. They're masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people are the Christians, and I'm one of them. Isn't that a great testimony? With all the world throws him, all the persecution that person knew, he knew the joy of the Lord. That's why we're called to rejoice. It doesn't mean we're always happy, as it were, but there is something inside us that knows that whatever the world throws at us, that we are safe, and one day we will be home forever. 
And in the end, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. That's why we have a joy that no one else has. Rejoice always. Joyful. That's one. The second one. Prayerful. Verse 17. Pray continually. We all know prayer is one of the great privileges of the Christian life. It means that we can come into the presence of the living God anytime we want and talk to him. Tell him what's on our hearts. We don't need a special permit. We don't need to book an appointment. We don't need to be a special person. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ, a door has been opened into his very presence for all time and at all times. We don't need a particular place. We don't need a particular time. We don't need a particular form of words. We don't need someone to go through. We can pray whenever we like, wherever we like. Now, isn't that extraordinary that we can do that? We can come into the presence of the living God. We can tell him exactly what's on our hearts whenever we want. We can talk as a child to our Heavenly Father. And we can all do it. See, not all of us will be able to preach, maybe. Not all of us can teach in a Sunday club. Not all of us can contribute musically. Not all of us can look after the finances or raise the flowers. But we can all pray. And Paul says, pray continually. One of the greatest uh, Christians I ever had the privilege of knowing, uh, he used to say, talk as you walk. In other words, wherever you're going, at any time, walking down the street, sitting at your desk, having a bath, cooking the dinner, hoovering the living room, pray whilst doing it. Pray continuously. I remember an old lady who used to work at All Souls, and John again may remember her. Uh, she was delightful. She used to work at the welcome desk. You'd come in, she was one of the first people you'd meet. Her name was Gladys. Do you remember Gladys? And uh, she was a delightful lady. I kind of ashamed him. I didn't know much about her, but she always smiled. We had a little chat. Then she died. It was after I'd left. And I remember talking to Richard Buse, who did the funeral. And he discovered she hadn't known either, that every day Gladys had spent four hours praying for the church. Now, we just knew her as somebody who sat there, smiling at people, welcomed them. But she was an unbelievable prayer warrior. And I've often wondered how much is the debt that we owe to that one lady praying for that church every day for four hours. Pray to be on your own. We can pray together with other people. And certainly the, the church prayer meeting is probably the most important meeting of the week or the month or whatever. But you wouldn't know it always from the amount of people who come for whatever reason. It's a great meeting. Come to it. Join together to pray. Some years ago, uh, I had a, a sabbatical, and I went off to America to stay with my sister, who lives in America. And I thought I'd go around some of the churches there, just sort of visit around, and ask them how they prayed. You know, what do they do to pray? How do they pray for one another? What was the kind of prayer life of the church like? And there's one church I went to in Philadelphia, which is a wonderful church. I loved going there. The people were very welcoming and warm. Um, and I asked them about their prayer life. How was their prayer life? And the guy there, he was an associate pastor, he looked rather embarrassed. He said, well, actually, he says, every Sunday we have an adult Sunday school before our main service or after our main service, whichever one you came to. We get something like 300 people. Twice a year, we make it a prayer Sunday. We ask people to come, and they come to pray. We get 30. Normally it's 300, then it's 30, for whatever reason. And he said, I, I don't know why it is. And he said, the only people in Philadelphia who pray are the Koreans interestingly. They get 400 people every day praying from 6 o'clock in the morning. Every day. Well, you think, no wonder God has worked in such extraordinary ways in Korea. For some reason, they've kind of learned the secret of prayer. I spoke yesterday about the, the, the Welsh revival. 
I'm I, I just fascinated by it. The whole thing was just an extraordinary time. And the question is, why did it happen? Why did it take place? What was so special about Wales in 1904, 1905? Well, you can look at many sociological reasons. But I guess the reason, the divine reason, was that there had been people in Wales praying for it for years. Um, and what happened then was just the result and God's answer to those prayers. We moved to the Cotswolds 27 years ago now. Um, and at the time when we moved there, people said, it's a spiritual desert, there's nothing going on there. And that there was very little life. But little, little by little, that's changed. So that now, all over the North Cotswolds, there are churches with life and rejuvenated congregations. Now, why? Well, I believe it was because 40, 50 years ago, well, for 40 or 50 years, there was a small group of people who committed themselves to praying for that part of the country, praying for the Cotswolds. I met some of them, but some of them I didn't know who they were. But it's a small group. They prayed constantly that God would change it. And by God's grace, he did. So Paul says, pray continuously. Pray here, continuously. We find it hard. Of course we do, because the devil is the first thing he wants to get rid of. Um, two things often said, the first two things that go in any church are prayer and evangelism, because they're the two things the devil hates the most. So pray continually. So, joyful, prayerful, thankful. Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It's not saying that we should give thanks for everything that happens. Um, there are many things in life that are very hard to take, but that we should give thanks in everything. In other words, there are always things, in whatever situation we find ourselves, for which we can give thanks. Because whatever the world throws at us, we are still secure. You know, you know Matthew Henry, I've heard of Matthew Henry. He was, a, he was author of probably the most famous Bible commentary, a man of extraordinary erudition. He was known for his gratitude. He was somebody who was always grateful. And once while walking down the street, he was mugged and robbed. And the thieves took everything of value that they could find on him. And this is what he said. I am thankful that during these years, I have never been robbed until now. Also, even though they took my money, they didn't take my life. And although they took all I had, it wasn't much. Finally, I am grateful that it was I who was robbed, not I who robbed. Isn't that grace? That's amazing, isn't it? Somebody who can find always something for which to be grateful. Reminds me of a, a Scottish minister actor, a man called Alexander White, who had a, had a reputation for wonderfully uplifting prayers on a Sunday morning. And he'd always begin by praising God for the beauty of creation and all this, that, and the other. Well, one Sunday morning, it was a kind of November, it was a drink day. It was, it was wet and, and, and foggy and horrible. And the congregation was saying to themselves, well, I wonder what he's going to say today then. How is he going to pray this morning? And he got up. And he began by praying, we thank thee, O God, that it's not always like this. <laughs> Great, isn't it? Thankful. It's just so lovely to be around thankful people. And we as believers are called to be thankful. Next one. Watchful, verses 19 to 21. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Paul knows that false teachers will come along and lead the people astray. He's equally aware that there are some who believe only what their church teaches. They won't listen to anybody else. And so he says to them, be on your guard. Get rid of evil. 
Hold on to what is good. Make sure you kind of discern. Be watchful, be careful. We're surrounded there by all sorts of siren voices, aren't we? And sometimes it's difficult to know what to listen to. I remember going to the uh, Christian Resources Exhibition in Birmingham some years ago. And there was a stall there run by a church that was based in London. And they were very friendly, and I started talking to them, and they invited me to join their church. And I said, well, actually, you know, I'm, I, I live 100 miles away from London. Aren't there any other churches I could join? And she said, well, I've spoken to our leader about this, and uh, he says that, well, there aren't any other churches like ours. No, you've got to come to us. Heck of a long way to go to church, isn't it? But I remember thinking, you know, how, how can you say that? Do you, do you really believe that you're the only church in the world that people should go to? And I think they genuinely did. And yet you knew instantly that something was wrong. Well, just a few years later, that, that the so-called leader was found out in gross immorality. The church imploded, basically. He went into sharp decline, has never been the same again. And that's why Paul says, test what you hear. Be aware of what you're listening to. Um, test. Thing people come to you and say, this is the word of the Lord. Just test things. Watch, be watchful, be careful. Here are just a few signs maybe to watch out for. So if you come across a church that says that they're there alone the truth, that you have to come to them, you have to be a part of their church, if they seem to think of themselves as some sort of spiritual elite, be careful. If you find members of any church or group endlessly quoting the wisdom of their leader, as though this person's word was the last word on any subject, and if they seem to allow this leader to do all their thinking for them, be careful. If a church seems obsessed by money, it's always talking about it, and always wanting more of your money, and telling us how God wants us to be rich, and the way to be rich is to give, and this, that, and the other. Again, be careful. If a church spends all its time telling you what to do, laying down rules and laws, and saying this is what you must abide by, rather than telling you what the Lord Jesus has done. If that's all the emphasis on what you do and not what he has done, then be careful. Paul says, be watchful, be careful of all these things. And then finally, verses 22-24, be faithful. Avoid every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. In other words, he says, live godly lives. God is faithful to you. Make sure you're faithful to him. Do, do you notice it? On the one hand, he says, avoid every kind of evil. But then he says that it's God himself who will sanctify you through and through. He will keep you blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. There's always this wonderful balance, isn't there, in Scripture. On the one hand, we're to, we're to do our part. But actually, through it all, God in his grace and his mercy will do it for us. You do your part, and God will do his part. Joyful, prayerful, thankful, watchful, faithful. I remember a friend of mine going to a con formation service and waxing lyrical uh, about the sermon that a particular bishop had given. I can't say I'd ever heard that before. I probably haven't heard it since. But anyway, this was apparently a memorable sermon. Now, I wasn't there, but I can still remember to this day the points that bishop made. Now, I've been to many confirmation services, and I cannot remember anything a bishop has said. Isn't that ironic? The one confirmation sermon I can remember was one I didn't hear. But nevertheless, he said this, and I just think it's, I think it's just a, a wonderful sermon. 
He said this, he said, you haven't come here today to listen to me. You want to hear from Jesus, don't you? So I'm going to tell you three things about Jesus. One, he will never let you down. Jesus will never let you down. He is always faithful. He will always keep his word. See, we're so used, aren't we, to hearing people make promises they cannot keep and probably have no intention of keeping. But God is not a man that he should lie. His word is always true. He will never let you down. Secondly, he'll never let you off. He will always hold you to the highest standards. You see, God is absolutely pure. He's, he's purer than pure. He's absolutely holy. He's utterly without any taint or blemish. And he wants us to be like him. So he's always seeking to make us more like Jesus. So he'll never let us off. He will always hold us to that, to be like Jesus. He will never let you down. He'll never let you off. Guess the third one? He will never let you go. See, we so often think, don't we, that, that being Christian is too hard. How can we really do it? But the point is that it's him. It's about him. It's about him holding on to us. There was a little girl who uh, knew she wanted to be a Christian, but thought, I, I can't keep it up. I can't, I can't live as a Christian. I can't live in the way that I should. And she was talking to her grandfather about it. And the grandfather said, well, look, okay, just come here a minute. He said, I want you to hold my hand with yours. The little girl had a little hand. Little hand. She grabbed hold of granddad's hand. He said, right, hold on to it and don't let go. So she tried. He just pulled his hand away just like that. Couldn't hold on. He said, all right, now you hold out your hand and I'm going to grab yours. And he grabbed it. He said, now you pull your hand out. And she pulled and she tugged and she struggled. She couldn't move it. He says, do you see the point? You think that being a Christian is about you with your tiny, puny little hand holding on to God. And you can't do it, can you? But actually, that's not what being a Christian is about. Being a Christian is about God with his big, mighty right hand holding on to you. And he will never let you go. The one who calls you is faithful. He will do it. When I was in London, I had an American friend uh, who was a man of very few words. And you get a phone call from him and say, Steve, BJ. That, that was it. And you knew instantly who it was. He had a sign on the door, actually, uh, was a, a, a doormat. You didn't see it when you came into the house because you were over it before you noticed. But you did notice it when you went out. And it said, all of our guests bring us pleasure. Some by coming, others by going. <laughs> and you always thought every time you went out, which one was I, you know. But he always, when he used to write a letter or speak to you, he'd always end with the same words. He'd say, keep the faith. Great word, keep the faith. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, keep the faith. Keep going. Don't give up. It's infinitely worth it. The prize at the end is so wonderful, so extraordinary, so great. Keep going, even when it's tough. Because God has given you all that you need. He's died on the cross for you. He's forgiven your sins. He's promised you eternity. So keep the faith. Keep going. He will do his part. Let's pray that we can do ours. And I pray that God will bless you here at Christ Church. Surbiton Hill, in all that you do for him, because he is faithful and he will do it. Shall I pray? Lord Jesus, thank you for your, your word. Thank you for these five instructions. When you call us to be joyful, to be prayerful, to be thankful, to be watchful, and finally, 
to be faithful because you are always faithful to us. Help us in whatever way we can. Be faithful to you, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.